come down with mighty power and glorify the name. Blow over us, O wind of God, come now and remain sweeping over every land. Fruit of resurrection power, blow over us, O wind of God, and fill us every hour. Strengthen every spirit, tied and beaten in the world, and give us all a vision of the kingdom of the Lord. Spirit of God's anointed, in your hands you hold the key. From the mastery of death and hell, you have set your people free. Come down with mighty power and glorify the name. Blow over us, O wind of God. Come now and remain sweeping over every land. Fruit of resurrection power Blow over us, O wind of God And fill us every hour You moved in our creation And you spoke through those of old A message of salvation Few believed when it was told Through you was born the Savior and through you he gave his life and still today his truth breaks down the shackles of our lives come down with mighty power and glorify the name blow over us O wind of god come now and remain sweeping over every land Fruit of resurrection power Blow over us, O wind of God And fill us every hour And work among your people And help us all unite To look in one direction Soldiers in a common fight The fight against injustice hopelessness and sin to reach a lost humanity and bring the trusting in come down with mighty power and glorify the name blow over us O wind of god come now and remain sweeping over every land fruit of resurrection power blow over us O wind of god and fill us every hour blow over us O wind of god and fill us every hour Thank you very much. David thought it'll be good for me to share a little bit about how that song came about. I used to be a youth pastor in my church uh, back in Sri Lanka in those days when I met David. And uh, lots of young people would come to Christ. But after some time, I realized that many of them were getting tired. Uh, tired of the life of the Christian. Not tired of being a Christian, but feeling very exhausted. And... Uh, it used to bother me that 
You know, we talk about the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ, and still to see that so many felt so defeated. And so it was out of that that I wrote this song, Come Down With Might Power, just praying that God will give us a fresh wind of the Spirit of God. And I pray that this morning too, the Lord will give us a freshness of the wind of the Spirit of God. You know, the Spirit of God who was there in creation is the same Spirit of Jesus Christ who is here with us today because it is in him that we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had this wonderful service of uh, praising God and remembering the great things that God has done for us. And so I want to encourage you as we uh, begin, let's pray for a moment and commit our hearts and our lives to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, for the privilege of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ, people from different lands, from different backgrounds, and yet in Christ, you have shown us that we are the family of God. We thank you for the privilege of calling God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us to help us understand your word that you inspired. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to bring greetings to you, first having to thank Pastor Jerry, uh, uh, for, sorry, Pastor Jesse, for the warm welcome to be here today. Uh, he told me that he will be uh, away preaching in another service, and uh, yet I want to say thank you, Pastor Jesse, and all the elders and members of the congregation here for the warm invitation. And again, thanks to Dr. J David Chung for getting me, getting Denisa and me down here. We are staying in Kentucky for a few months, for four months at Asbury Seminary, if you've heard of it. Uh, I'm working on a writing project there. Uh, I want to bring greetings to you from Sri Lanka. Uh, I know it's not easy to locate Sri Lanka on the map, but the best way to do that is go find India and then drop your eye down right below India. You'll see a little pear-shaped island. It's about 250 miles long, 160 miles wide. We have 22 million people in that tiny place. and. Uh, uh, but it's a beautiful place, so I want to... Uh, sometimes people think when I speak at these events or services that I am a representative of the, of the tourist board because I show pictures of Sri Lanka. But I want to welcome you to uh, consider coming by, but always a welcome, please, to pray for us that God will help us to be faithful to him in the challenges of living in Sri Lanka. I bring greetings to you from Colombo Theological Seminary. I work as principal of the seminary. I've been there for the last 25 years, and uh, it's a real joy to see men and women being led to the Word of God, to understand how to, how to know the Word of God, how to love the Word of God, and how to teach the Word of God. And we are delighted that God gives us these privileges in difficult circumstances. Uh, Colombo Theological Seminary is deeply connected to someone here uh, because it is uh, uh, a seminary that is actually under the parliament registration called Colombo Bible College, which was founded by Dr. Bruce Kerr, the husband of Mrs. Esther Kerr. And, I, and I'm told that Esther tells me that she will be here for the second service. But this was founded by her husband and another missionary uh, that came from the US, from the conservative Baptist uh, congregations. Uh, and we really thank God for the spiritual legacy that Mrs. Kerr and her husband have left behind. My text this morning is Mark chapter 5, verse 21 
to, 20, uh, to 43, and I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 5, verse 21 to verse 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing outside, wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. We thank God for his word. You know, the two stories in this passage are stories about personal tragedies and desperation. There's a man in the first story, the ruler of a synagogue, and he's in sheer desperation. His, his daughter is at, on the brink of death. And just next to that is a story about a woman who has been having an agonizing condition for 12 long years. She is desperate. But stories like this are not rare, especially in the last year and a half. Desperation has been a word that has captured the mood of the entire globe, all around the world. And as we turn on our news, we keep finding story after story. But even in our personal lives, we come to moments of desperation, don't we? when things just don't seem to add up. Is it possible that there could be someone here today who is feeling that feeling 
of desperation. When did you last feel like that? I once heard about a man who was taking a vacation in the mountains. He was quite enjoying himself one early morning, walking and looking around, and he didn't realize he had come to the edge of the cliff. So as he looked around and looked up, his foot slipped and he then found himself falling over the cliff. And as he was falling, his arms were flailing and he grabbed a hold of whatever he could and he grabbed a hold of a branch and he's hanging on that branch for dear life and slowly looked down and saw it was many, many feet below. And he looked up and there was no one there. He was alone that morning. But he began to cry out. He said, help, is there anybody up there? And as his voice echoed, he realized there was no one answering. He shouted again, help, is there anybody up there? And then he heard an answer, yes. He was so happy. He said, he couldn't see who it was, so he said, who are you? And the voice answered, I am God. He said, can you help me? He said, sure. Okay, what must I do, he said. And he said, let go. He looked down, he looked up, he looked down again, and he said, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> Sometimes when I think about our world today, it looks like that man, doesn't it? Yep. Hanging between heaven and the great abyss of social, political, and personal turmoil that is threatening seemingly to annihilate humanity. The COVID pandemic, which we thought at the beginning was going to be like the common cold, has now taken, completed uh, its second awful anniversary. Sorry, we are very close to it. And over 240 million people have been affected. 4.8 million lives lost. In India, over 450,000 people. In Brazil, over 600,000. And I read that in the US, we have lost over 740,000 precious lives, three quarters of a million. But alongside the pandemic, we, we struggled as we saw the challenges you faced here in the US, tragedies in history, the killing of George Floyd and the riots and the, and the violence that followed it, the mob assault on the Capitol building in January. But the situation in the world is no different. We could think about the brutal massacres of people in Myanmar by the military, the chaos that is unfolding in Afghanistan, or the sheer terror of school children going to class, to school in Nigeria, not knowing if they will be abducted that day. In Sri Lanka, we had the devastating Easter attacks in 2019, when terrorists simultaneously targeted churches and hotels. And my own home church was one of the targets when the intelligence later uh, looked into the story, they found that the bomber didn't make it to my, to my church and our family was worshiping that Easter Sunday morning. Then COVID happened and today the Sri Lankan economy is caving in. We are faced with unprecedented food shortages. But it's not just society and politics that causes this sense of desperation. Even the environment seems to be going through a struggle that has never been known before. 
there are hundreds of forest fires that rage around the world. Every year, I'm told that four million square kilometers of land is destroyed by forest fires. And that's half the size of the US. Uh, this year, by mid-September, in the US alone, there were 44,647 forest fires. And the US had suffered this year 5.6 million acres of forest, of land. Forest fires are just one aspect of our climate emergency. On a personal level, look at the struggles we face with the internet. Quite apart from screen fatigue that children and young people are experiencing around the world, there is particularly pre-teenage and teenage girls suffering emotionally and mentally on account of social media. You will find that Mark Zuckerberg and the other moguls of Silicon Valley instruct their children not to be given devices, and now have even begun to instruct their nannies not to have any devices in use while they look after their children, because they understand the struggles that are going through. Recently, I saw a news report about a hearing in which uh, someone from Facebook was presenting this story of Facebook uh, and Instagram knowing about this, the challenges young girls are facing with the use of Instagram and the mental health issues that are arising. And these are causing so much of challenges for families. So it would be an understatement to say that the church everywhere is bewildered and overwhelmed, like that man hanging over the cliff, looking up and shouting, can anybody help me? And when we think about the Gospel of Mark that you've been studying and will continue to study, Mark wrote his gospel in such a world. He was writing to the Christians in Rome. And the Roman state at that time had become increasingly authoritarian and morally chaotic. Christians had become, become the target of the emperor Nero. And at the time Mark wrote, the apostle Paul had been beheaded uh, outside of Rome, three miles outside of Rome. And Peter, the apostle Peter, had been crucified upside down. And the church was facing such persecution and challenges. As, as Emperor Nilo, Nero used Christians to light up his garden parties. And the church had been driven underground to the catacombs. You know, it was a terrible time. But Mark is writing a gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Isn't it interesting? He's writing a gospel. And what are the very first words that he writes at that time, this is what he says. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And at this time, this is what God is looking for from his church. To be able to go out not tired and weary and exhausted, but to be able to go out with the power of the Holy Spirit and to walk out into the world that is so much in desperation and to be able to say, the beginning, help me here, the beginning of the good news. When the news is screaming bad news, yeah. we are going to be walking out and saying to people, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the passage that we read, if you look in your Bibles, you'll notice it comes in a cluster of four stories, beginning in chapter 4, verse 35. And Mark very specifically puts these four stories one next to the other. And if you notice, the first story in 435 is about Jesus in a boat. And he's with his disciples crossing the lake and a storm comes up. 
And we, are, we read of how, how they were so terrified by the storm and Jesus was sleeping. And so they wake Jesus up and say, Master, do you not care that we are going to die? And Jesus calms the storm. Be still, be quiet, and the storm is calm. But immediately after that, Mark tells us the story of the demoniac, the Gadarene demoniac, that man that Jesus meets among the tombs, who no one could control, who would destroy himself. He was cutting himself. He was running around alone. He was in a terrible state. And how when Jesus asked him, what is your name? The answer was not my name, but our name is Legion. Or my name is Legion, but Legion is a plural. It's a plural of the demons that were in him. So many demons, about 6,000 demons in that one man. And how Jesus then commands the demons to come out of him. And the man is completely restored. Immediately after that, we have this story of Jairus and his daughter and the woman who had an issue of blood. If you think about it, these are stories that tell us about a buffeting by a storm, about the binding of a man by legion, about the bleeding of a woman over 12 years, and about the bereavement of a couple of their daughter. Buffeting, binding, bleeding, bereavement are the experiences of people all the time. And together these stories constitute the most pernicious fears, primal fears that lurk in the human soul. The storm reminds us of disaster. The man at the tombs reminds us of the demonic. The woman, Jairus, reminds us of death and the woman reminds us of disease. The demonic, disaster, disease, and death. And in every one of those instances, Jesus comes through. We sang hallelujah. Can we say hallelujah? hallelujah? You see that those stories are not put there by accident. Mark deliberately places them one next to the other to remind his readers. Remember that the people who are going to read his gospel are not the people out there. It's people in here. The church of Jesus Christ, to know that the Lord that we claim and the Lord that we confess is this Lord Jesus Christ who has power over disaster. Amen. He has power over the demonic. He has power over disease. And he has power over death. And God wants us to know that, even though sometimes our experiences challenges that belief. God wants us to know that the Lord that we worship is the one who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Amen. And what are these stories telling us? They're telling us that desperation will be turned to deliverance when the prayer of faith meets the power of Jesus. Can I say that again? Desperation will be turned to deliverance when the prayer of faith meets the power of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at these stories, I think there are four great truths from these stories of desperation and deliverance. As I said, these stories were not written for the people out there. They were meant to be read in the churches of the time. So why did Mark tell these stories? Not primarily to tell unbelievers how they can find Jesus Christ, but to tell believers how they can maintain and grow their faith in Jesus Christ. Because the believers will tell the unbelievers like you're going to do next Sunday, Invitation Sunday, tell them, hey, you come here because you're going to find someone who can meet your need, who can 
give you the salvation that you and I desperately need. So what are these four great truths that I see in this passage? The first is to remember that tragedy is no respecter of persons. Tragedy does not discriminate between persons. It's no respecter of persons. I grew up in a fairly stable home, uh, and I had a great family of seven of us, and uh, we grew up uh, comfortable. I was sent to a nice school. Uh, I had my food on the table. And so as I grew up and I thought about things like tragedy and disaster and trouble, I used to think that that has to do with people uh, not like me. It happened to other people. You know, maybe the rural people, maybe the poor people, maybe the foolish people, maybe the criminal people, but not for people like me. I had this at the back of my mind that tragedy was not something that touches people like me. Except in the early 80s, our country had an ethnic riot, and our family got caught on the wrong side of it. And suddenly I found that my neighborhood was looking at us as enemies. And within a few days of the riot beginning, and it was sweeping across the country, a mob showed up at our home, over 100 people, and they came with all kinds of things, and we, we fled for our life. And as I ran off, I ran about maybe a quarter mile or half a mile away from our home. And then I saw the fire, the smoke going up as our house had been set on fire. And I thought to myself, I was a Christian at the time, I thought to myself, Lord, this is really happening. I'm going to stand here and watch the house blaze and try to understand what you're telling me. And I walked my way to my own church, uh, which had been turned into a refugee camp, and that day I found 700 people there, and they came from different backgrounds. There were the poor people, there were the not-so-city people, there was me, then there was the rich people, but the tragedy is no respecter of persons. And I realized that day, I was learning a lesson that tragedy does not discriminate. And this is how Mark brings these two stories together. Jairus is a man. He's a male, a privileged male. He's a ruler of a synagogue, which means you're not just a privileged male, but you're really up there. He probably was very wealthy and uh, had all the honor of society. And yet, his life had been touched by tragedy. He says, my little daughter is dying. She was their pride and joy, 12 years old. She was doing so well, and she had reached her 12th birthday. And rabbis taught them that when a girl reached 12 in that culture at that time, she became eligible for, uh, to be betrothed and to be married. Uh, and uh, the family would have been so happy that she was now turning into womanhood. And yet suddenly, she's ill and getting progressively worse. And no doubt, Jairus did everything used all his influence, all his money, all his contacts. But tragedy is no respecter of persons. And so he could see that his little girl was at the very end. He saw very clearly what that Old Testament wise man said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You remember that? Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. He was desperate. Was there nothing more he could do? And he suddenly remembers that lots of people are heading out to the lakeside because that morning too, Jesus was going to show up and had shown up. Of course, Jesus had come to his town several times, but Jairus had no need of him. But now, Jairus thinks, 
Well, I'm going to head out. I'm going to hurry down there and see if there's anything that could be done for my daughter. Immediately after introducing Jairus to us, Mark tells us about the woman. You notice how she's very different to Jairus? First, she's a woman, and in that society, women had a lower status than men. But she wasn't just a woman in comparison to a man, but we are told that she had been suffering this illness for 12 long years. And the illness, you remember, according to the Old Testament, when you have any kind of discharge or emission or, or bleeding, then there is a kind of a ritual impurity that sets in. And you had to purify yourself, but she couldn't because this was a continuous bleed that was going on not for a day, not for a week, not for a month. It was going on for years, which meant that she had become permanently, ritually unclean. She could not associate in normal society. She could not have normal relationships. She was ostracized, marginalized. She was despised. And you can imagine her condition, not just physically, but imagine her spiritual and emotional condition, her psychological condition. Imagine that sense of worthlessness that kept gnawing away at her inside. And she too is in need of Jesus' touch. Now in South Asia, if someone said that, talked about this woman, woman people would have said, oh, that's your karma. Do you understand karma? Uh, we, are, we are immersed in that culture in South Asia. Karma basically says you're suffering today. You know why? Because you did something in your past lives. And you're just, but I can't remember my past life. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Karma suggests that it's, it's you're paying back for something that happened in your past lives. And your past lives could be many. And you're just paying off for it. It's a fatalistic, hopeless situation to be in. Now, the Bible doesn't say that the woman was responsible for her suffering because many times in the New Testament, as we read the stories of Jesus, there is no discussion about why this person is suffering. It's just a fact of suffering. And when Jesus confronts the sufferings of people, what's his heart reaction? Can you think of a good word for that? How does Jesus respond to suffering? Oh, I know why you're suffering. It's because you... Is that how he responds? The word compassion. The word compassion. It's a beautiful word. Actually, in the New Testament, that word used in Greek suggests something to do with the gut. It's like your gut is moved. Your gut is, is you know, touched. Jesus, when he saw suffering, it moved him in his gut. He felt it deep inside of him. Isn't that great? And if you are having even a little bit of suffering today, and something that you can't even share with someone, may I suggest to you that as Jesus looks at you today, he's being moved in his gut. He feels it like no one else can feel it. And so Mark tells us about these two people. Tragedy is not a respecter of persons. And she suffered so much that she, the Bible tells us she had been to many physicians. But this is how the original text reads. She had suffered much under many physicians. She had suffered much under many... Do you know what? Isn't that funny? Isn't that something odd? You don't go to the doctor to suffer under the doctor. But that's what Mark says. We've got to read it carefully. It's possible that because of her hopeless condition, the doctors were taking advantage of her. 
They knew she couldn't be cured. They knew that she was an opportunity for making money. So the Bible tells us she had suffered much under many physicians and spent everything, gaining nothing. In fact, she only got worse. There is a suggestion there that the doctors too were part of the problem for her. Her condition as an ostracized, despised person had become an opportunity for people to take advantage of her. Tragedy is no respecter of persons. But secondly, desperate circumstances can generate the most compelling faith. If you and I face any kind of suffering, I've learned over the years that while it is painful, I always know that, the, that God works all things together for the good of those who love God. So in that refugee camp, I had to come to terms with that promise. And I had to ask the Lord and say, Lord, help me to understand that this too is working together for my good. Today, if you ask me, I would, what would you do with that experience? I would say I wouldn't bargain that for anything. Because that experience was important for my own formation. You know, God is building faith in our hearts. He's more interested in building faith in our hearts than in giving us a good time. Okay? Sometimes we think that happiness is God's greatest ambition for me. No. The Bible doesn't promise that God's greatest ambition for me is for me to be happy. It's promising that his greatest ambition is for me to be, become like Jesus Christ. And for you and I to reach up to the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, faith, uh, sorry, desperate circumstances can generate compelling faith. What does J 1 Peter say? In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, Jairus's securities had been stripped away from him. His anxiety and his suffering had taken away all his securities. But it was for that precise reason, as every security is stripped away, it was for that precise reason that Jairus was able to consider Jesus Christ. Jesus had visited his town many times, but Jairus was not going to see Jesus. He had no need of him. But once all this had been taken away, he recollected the testimonies of his neighbors and the people rushing by her, his house. And he thought to himself, is it possible that Jesus is the answer? You know, desperate circumstances can create the most compelling faith. I remember being in a conference uh, of the Anglican Church in my, in my country. I was asked to be a speaker at that conference. There were a number of people there. And it was at a hotel. And one morning after breakfast, everyone went for session. I wasn't doing anything that morning at the session. So I was taking a little longer at the breakfast. And after some time, I noticed it was just me and another man across in a, at a different table. And he was seated and he looked so sad, so despondent. So I thought as I passed him by that I would say hi to him. I said, good morning. He said, good morning. He said, uh, who are you? I said, I'm just here for the conference. He said, oh, great. I'm also here. And I sat down and talked with him. And he said, you know, I, after a few minutes, he said, I just came back from the sea. I went out this morning to take my life. I got such a shock. I said, why would you do that? He said, because I'm really 
at the end of my tether. My wife just left me with two young sons. And you know something, I'm a very wealthy man. And he talked to me about his wealth and I realized he's the richest man I'd ever met. And yet he was so despondent. And he said, but when I was out in the sea, I remembered my six-year-old son. And I thought to myself, I can't do this to him. And so I came back. So we talked. And as we talked, I realized his heart was so open. So I shared the gospel with him. Although he was at a Christian conference, he didn't know the Lord. And then I asked him, do you think you would like to ask Jesus to help you? He said, I really would. Will you come with me to my room so we can pray? So we went to the room and we prayed together. And he received Jesus. And I can tell you till his dying day, he died a few years ago, he remained a faithful Christian and did much for the kingdom of God. Because in that desperate situation, this rich man, his heart was open. You see, it can create conditions for compelling faith. And so with Jairus, but also with this woman. The woman, uh, we are told, she had 12 years of bleeding. She, she too, the Bible says, had heard about Jesus. And now a new faith had been birthed in her. But if you look at the text, this is what it says. It says in verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. And this is how it really reads. It's something like, it, like this. She's coming up behind Jesus. If I could touch at least his garment, I will be healed. If I could touch at least his garment, I will be healed. Think about that. What is she doing as she inches her way through the crowd? She's saying, if I could touch at least, look at the faith that is birthed in her, that she has only to touch his clothes and she will be healed. One of the greatest stories of the of conversion of the 20th century is about a man called Charles Colson, who you will know very well. In the Watergate scandal, he was indicted and he was uh, condemned to prison. Charles Colson was one time one of the eight most powerful men on the planet. And he didn't have a need for God. But when he knew that his life had been transformed, his whole future had been changed, in that desperate situation, his friend gives him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And as he reads the book, he knows that he needs Jesus. And faith is birthed in him. And in his car, reading that book, he weeps, he sobs, and he asks Jesus to help him. You see, desperate situations can give birth to compelling faith. But Charles Colson didn't meet Jesus on his way to the second time at the White House. He met Jesus on his way to the jailhouse. Because it is in that situation that his heart was opened up. Sometimes we need those moments when God opens up our hearts, takes away our security. And we need to be able to say, Lord, I'm okay with that because I know that you're forming faith in me. The third great truth that I see is that the unimaginable power of Jesus is accessible to, through the prayer of faith. Now notice that in both these situations, Jesus was already a person who bore unimaginable power. But it wasn't just distributed unconditionally. Jairus had to come to Jesus, fall at his feet, and say, Lord, teacher, come to my home 
and lay your hand on my little daughter and she will be healed. His faith had to address Jesus Christ. And you notice that when, uh, when it comes to the woman, she didn't even get to talk to Jesus, did she? Because in her condition, she couldn't. She couldn't say, please put your hand on me and heal me. Because if she did, if he did, he was going to get unclean. She couldn't tell him the problem because he, it would have caused an uproar in the community. But notice how the prayer of faith touches the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going, she's behind him, and she's coming up behind saying, if I could only touch at least his garment, I will be healed. Now my question is, this is the only story in the New Testament where a person is getting healing without Jesus knowing. Am I right? Every other story, Jesus knows he's healing them. But in this case, Jesus doesn't know he's healing them. And I ask myself, how did that happen? How does Jesus heal without knowing he's going to heal? You remember that the Bible tells us that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus did all his signs and wonders. Jesus, the Son of God, was now the Son of Man, and he was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And the Spirit of God is the one through whom Jesus was able to accomplish all these great miracles. And so as Jesus is going, I'm imagining, he, he's not looking back, but someone else is looking back. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. He knows the heart of the woman. He knows her need. And as she gets closer, he's saying, get closer, daughter. Get closer, daughter. And finally, when she grabs the garment, he says, Zzz. and the Bible says, immediately she was healed. Jesus knew that power had gone out from him, but it's only then that Jesus turned around. Isn't that marvelous? That God knows our heart and he is just waiting for the prayer of faith to touch the power of Jesus. The unimaginable power of Jesus is accessible through the prayer of faith. Just as tragedy is the great leveler and made the rich entitled Jairus equal to a poor destitute woman, so faith is the great leveler. Because everyone who comes to God must come on the basis of faith. For without faith, it is, help me here, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Oh no, Lord, I'm a member of Grace Community Church. I think that should be good enough. No, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Amen? Amen. It doesn't matter whether you're a Northwesterner, Northwesterner or a Southeasterner. It doesn't matter whether you're a Sri Lankan or an American. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white. It does not matter to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The un unimaginable power of Jesus Christ is accessible through the prayer of faith. And finally, Jesus' healing power comes with great simplicity and extravagant grace. Jesus' healing power comes with surprising simplicity and extravagant grace. Did you notice that the most powerful miracles of Jesus are done in the most simple ways? A word, a touch, or a simple instruction. There are no elaborate rituals, there are no long mystical incantations, and there is certainly no instructions about how you can get your healing if you send your donation now to the account number that is coming up on the screen. Oh, none of that with Jesus. 
Let's be sure of it. No long incantations and no long requests. You only find Jesus healing because he is the real thing, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't need all that ritual because he is the power of God. He is the son of God. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He does not need to shout. He doesn't need to dance. He just needs to speak. Just like in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The power of God is administered with simplicity. Little girl, I say to you, get up. Like a dad waking up the daughter. Just get up, daughter. And the Bible says she immediately stood up. And with the woman, he didn't even have to say a word because the Spirit of God had already done it. Several years ago, I was uh, doing ministry as a youth pastor, and I had been very careless with my voice. You know, young people don't think about all of the long-term ramifications of how we use our bodies. And I had been careless with my voice, and I lost my voice. And I found every 20 minutes I would lose my voice. I couldn't continue a conversation. So I went to see a doctor, a specialist, uh, and I put it to him that I have this problem. So he examined my voice, and he told me, you've severely damaged your vocal cord. I said, that's uh, good to know, doctor, if you can just tell me how I can fix it. He said, well, well, first thing, you cannot speak louder than I'm speaking to you across the table. I said, okay, for how long? He said, that's, that's what you'll have to do permanently. Because if you speak any louder than this, you're going to damage it permanently. And you're going to lose it completely. I was completely devastated. Here I was, a youth pastor who needed to preach and liked singing, and I was being told, you can't sing. And I asked him, can I sing? Can I speak publicly? He said, no, you can't do that. Just this volume. If you can maintain this volume, then it's OK. I came away completely shattered. One day, a few days after that, I was going to meet my wife. She was my fiance at the time. And I was walking up the street. And I passed a house of a, of a Christian lady who I knew about, but I had never met before, but I knew she lived there. She was at her gate, and as I passed by, I just waved because I knew who she was, a godly Christian woman. And she said, son, hi. Uh, hello, why don't you come on in uh, and ask me who I am? She said, oh, I know that you're uh, working as a youth pastor. Why don't you come in? And so we had a conversation. And then she said, so how are you? How are things? And usually, what do we say when someone asks, how are you? And I was about to say, fine, when I thought, you know what? I need to, I tell other people, you've got to be honest when someone asks you. So I said, uh, auntie, I called her auntie. I said, auntie, uh, you know, I have a problem. I've just been diagnosed with a condition that doesn't allow me to speak publicly. So she asked me a little about it, and she said, very simply, God can heal you, son. For a while, I hadn't even thought about that fact. <laughs> and so she brought her big Bible out, and she read from James chapter 5. And then after she read those verses about the prayer of faith, she said, I'm going to pray for you. Shall we pray? She prayed a simple prayer. She didn't stand up. She didn't shout out. She just prayed a simple prayer. And she finished her prayer. And she said, God has healed you. <laughs> Only thing, when you go, wherever you're going now, have a cup of Marmite. You know what Marmite is? It's like Vegemite. Are you familiar with Vegemite? It's a, it's a yeast extract, which we drink as a hot drink. Or sometimes we apply it on toast and have it with uh, toast. But it's a, it's, a, it's a health drink, kind of, you know. So I went to Deniza's home, 
And uh, she said, what will you have? I said, Marmite, <laughs> which was a strange request. I drank my Marmite. And I had a conversation with her for two hours and suddenly realized that my voice hadn't stopped working. And since that day, I have continued to sing and preach because the Lord's grace is administered with such simplicity, isn't it? But with such power. And so, just like that little girl being woken up, little girl, get up. Jesus turns to the woman, to the crowd, and says, who touched my clothes? This is my final little thought. The woman doesn't want to admit. Everyone's saying, Jesus, let's get on with it. Why are you talking about someone touching you? Everyone's pressing on you. Jairus' daughter is dying. But why does Jesus wait? Because the woman has been healed in the body, but she hasn't been healed in the soul. And he's not going to leave till he finishes the job. Who touched me? And the woman says, it's me. And she tells him the whole truth. She's expecting to be scolded, to be reprimanded, to be, to be made to feel worse than she has felt before. But what does she say? Daughter, your faith, has made you well. Just go. Go in peace. And heals her soul as he heals her body. My dear brothers and sisters, God has called us here to be his people, the children of the living God. We don't have to look over our shoulders wondering, do we belong? We are his. The Lord Jesus Christ is on your side. He's for you. And he wants to touch you and to give you that joy and the freedom with all the suffering and struggles you and I will have. But to know that he will take care of each one of those circumstances because desperation will turn to deliverance when the prayer of faith meets the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yo, subscribe to YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe to this channel.